Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. What did the original Constitution say about the right to vote? How has that changed over time and why? National Constitution Center President Jeffrey Rosen hosted a panel addressing those questions yesterday. It featured voting and election law experts Alex Kazar of Harvard, Derek Muller of Iowa Law, and Fernita Tolson of the USC Gould School of Law. They also discussed the memory of legendary voting rights advocate Congressman John Lewis and milestone anniversaries for the 15th and 19th Amendments. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Alex, Fernita, and Derek, thank you all so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Let us begin with Alex's book. And friends, please consider getting it because it's a definitive history of the right to vote in America and perfect homework, which I hope you'll be inspired to read after today's discussion. In this important book, Alexander Kazar, you argue that the right to vote has not been a steady bending of an arc toward justice or toward uh, universal suffrage. Instead, it's been a bumpy ride with peaks and valleys. And you note a similar series of cases of outright reversals of the right to vote. For example, women in New Jersey had the right to vote until 1807 and then lost it for more than a century, you know, until the 19th Amendment. African-Americans in many northern states had the right to vote at the time of the founding and then lost that right in the 1820s and 50s. And people of foreign birth similarly had the right to vote in the Midwest and Southwest and then lost it in the 1900s in an effort to limit the power of immigrants. A broad question, but tell us about the unsteady progress of suffrage in the United States. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for the introduction, and thank you for uh, for this question. Um, the you know there there is there there used to be um, you know a history that was much more comforting of the right to vote, which was okay. Yes, when the nation was founded. Um, the the suffrage rights were limited to white male property owners, but then it's been onward and upward ever since. So it, it's a chronicle of progress. But what I found in doing the research for the book was precisely what you described. And what ha- what seems to happen uh, is that each advance or most advances are accompanied or followed by conflict over those advances or conflict over the the actual exercise of the expanded franchise. I mean, you mentioned several examples. Uh, let me mention a few more. In the early 19th century, in the first sort of third, between 1810 and 1850, uh, property requirements are eliminated in most states, actually they're in all states by 1850. Uh, there are no property requirements to vote, but often the same constitutional conventions that did that instituted other requirements such as a prohibition of paupers voting, paupers being defined as anybody who was dependent on the state. Some of those same conventions that that eliminated property requirements in northern states disenfranchised African Americans who had not been disenfranchised earlier. After the Civil War, you mentioned the broad pattern of immigrants being restricted. And you, we find these, these remarkable quotes from leading intellectual figures in the 1870s saying, um, 
if we had known there were going to be all of these these poor immigrants flocking into the country, we never would have eliminated property requirements. And so what they turn around and do, uh, they can't, they can't, it's very hard to actually reinstitute a property requirement after you've gotten rid of it. But what they do is to create a lot of procedural obstacles to those immigrant voters voting. Okay. They, you know, if we one wanted to be a little bit shorthanded about it. They switch from disenfranchisement to voter suppression. And of course, the big story, the, the largest quantitative story in the late 19th century, um, is that African Americans who are technically uh, enfranchised by the 15th Amendment to the Constitution after the Civil War are removed wholesale from the electorate uh, in the South by, by 1900. Um, and, the, you know, the pattern continues in ways small and large. And just to round this out, I would say um, that the kinds of restrictions on and obstacles created to the exercise of the right to vote that have been going on, that are going on this year and that have been going on for the last 20 years, perhaps 30 are in a key respect a reaction uh, against the broadening of the franchise which occurred in the 1960s and the 1970s, which is a very, very significant historical development involving not only African Americans, but also uh, people, uh, immigrants and speakers of of foreign languages. So I I think this pattern continues, and um, we have to recognize that... uh, that not all of the American population has been happy about the expansion of the franchise. Thank you very much for that uh, powerful distillation of the wisdom of your book. It is meaningful to learn that there is a precedent for efforts to restrict the franchise by imposing uh, voter ID requirements or trying to prevent fraud. And this period you identify in particular from around 1850 through World War I, where the franchise was restricted not only on the basis of race, but also with new property requirements, as you said, to prevent African-Americans and immigrants from voting is deeply meaningful to learn about. Frenita Tolson, I can't wait to read your new book, which will be coming out soon, Rethinking the Constitutional Structure of Political Rights, the Evolution of Federal Voting Rights Enforcement from the founding to the dawn of the progressive era. Tell us about the thesis of that book and to what degree was the contraction that Alex Kazar talks about from the mid-19th century through the progressive era driven by the withdrawal of federal voting rights enforcement? Um, so I think Alex is actually a little bit too modest in, in talking about his book and sort of how it informed the thinking of pretty much everyone who works in this area. Um, so so my book is, um, it looks at the, the same issue from a bit of a different perspective, right? So I think Alex has done sort of a wonderful job of showing how um, the right to vote has uh, expanded and contracted at various points in history. Um, and in reading his work, it really raised a question in my mind about how Congress responded to those contractions, because a lot of this stuff was happening at the state level. Um, and so, you know, Reconstruction is a time when you really see Congress becoming more involved in um, sort of regulating the right to vo- vote and, and sort of forcing states to be more um, aggressive about enfranchising the formerly enslaved uh, population. Uh, But one thing that came to mind for me is uh, what about the period before Reconstruction? What did congressional power look like then? And I think the assumption is that, well, Congress didn't really do much. Right. We we thought we thought about the the right to vote as a a creature of state law. 
Um, and so Congress, you know, at least in my mind, before I started studying this, Congress didn't really have much to say about it. Um, but then Shelby County came out. So the Shelby County versus Holder decision was um, the decision in which the, the Supreme Court um, invalidated a portion of the preclearance form, uh, preclearance regime of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, and in that decision, the Supreme Court said that Congress had overstepped the, um, the bounds of its authority under the 14th and 15th Amendments when it required certain jurisdictions, um, mostly in, in the southern states, to uh, pre-clear any changes to their laws with the federal government before those laws could go into effect. Um, and so in finding that Congress had overstepped, I, I had some questions in my mind about if that was in fact true, because I've always conceived of um, federal power in this area as being quite broad. And, you know, I, I went, I'm like, maybe I'm just, you know, sort of adherent to the Warren Court and I've drunk the Kool-Aid and, you know, and so I decided to just really take a close look and a deep dive into this question. And so that was um, the motivation for writing a book, which starts at the founding. And what I found was that congressional power um, was in some ways before uh, the Civil War quite modest, but it manifested in ways that I don't think we uh, in the legal community really talk about. So for example, the book talks about how Congress exercised its authority under um, the Elections Clause, uh, which gives Congress uh, the power to, to make or alter state regulations that govern federal elections. Um, and also the Guarantee Clause, in which Congress guarantees to each state a Republican form of government, and finally, Congress's power under Article One, Section Five, which allows it to judge the elections of its membership. So these are all sources of authority that Congress has used in order to uh, influence state political systems. Um, and I realized this was an important part of the conversation that we were not having. And in, in many ways, it laid the foundation for exercises of congressional power during Reconstruction. So not only did the 14th and 15th Amendments provide an additional basis for um, Congress to act. So those are the provisions that we typically think of as being directly relevant to the individual right to vote, right? So as Alex mentioned, the 15th Amendment um, basically enfranchised African-Americans, right, by prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race with respect to voting. Uh, but Congress also used this authority under the Guarantee Clause to force Southern states to, um, to, to pass new constitutions and to remake their political systems. And they had constitutional conventions in which they were required to have um, you know, multiracial coalitions, right? These weren't constitutional conventions that were staffed purely by white um, property males, right? So, so essentially by reconstruction, you see this marriage of the constitution of political structure, as I call it, or Congress's power under the elections clause and the guarantee clause um, and article one, section five, which are, I think of as structural provisions that delegate power directly to Congress, but also these individual rights provisions, right? So Congress's power under the 14th and 15th Amendments in particular um, really gave Congress a, a quite broad basis to remake Southern political structures. Um, and it's this understanding, I argue, that should influence what Congress can do now when we think about the scope of congressional power over elections, instead of just focusing solely on the 14th and 15th Amendments. Thank you so much for that. And I have to say how exciting it is to read your work and to find you pointing our attention to the very few parts of the Constitution you just described, the structural guarantees, as well as the aspects of the, in the 14th and 15th Amendments dealing with the right to vote, teaching us that historically these provisions have been relied on to protect the franchise. And in your really creative and important articles, you argue that these clauses could provide a solid foundation for protecting voting rights today. And I want to ask you more specifically about all of those arguments soon. But friends who are watching, 
let's just review some of the provisions that Professor Tolson has called our attention to. In Article 1, we have uh, Article 1, Section 4, the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but Congress may at any time make or alter such regulations except to the place of choosing senators. She talked about Article 1, Section 5, which uh, says that each house shall be the judge of elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members. She talked about the guarantee of a Republican form of government. And then she talked about the 14th Amendment, which has a little considered provision in Section 2, which says that if any state denies the franchise, then it uh, correspondingly loses uh, representation in Congress. So these are really important uh, arguments, and we're going to return to uh, many of them in a moment. Derek Muller, in your very important work, you've argued that uh, deference to the states when it comes to elections is important. You note that the, co- that the Constitution doesn't create any federal right to vote, but leaves it up to the states to set voter qualifications. And you say that that kind of diversity is appropriate and should be deferred to by the courts. Tell us more about that argument and your reaction to what your colleagues have said. Yeah, no, I think it's a I think it's a fascinating structure that we have in the United States of federalism. And we talk about it sometimes, uh, you know, we, we think about it sometimes as the negative about, uh, you know, wh- whether it's the state or federal government that someone is not acting appropriately or not exercising sort of its authority in the right way. And there's been plenty of instances in American history where we can point to that. But the Constitution sort of default setting for most things in elections is that the states are going to run them, right? The states hold, pick the times, places, and manner of holding elections unless Congress steps in. Um, the states get to choose the qualifications of eligible voters for the House of Representatives and later after the 17th Amendment for the Senate. But uh, there is a floor placed in the Constitution saying, well, states, you can't, when you establish the right to vote for your citizens, for members of the House, it has to be the same as the right to vote for the citizens of the lowest chamber or the largest chamber in the in the state legislature. The notion being we're, we're going to sort of create this, this floor for the states. And hopefully the thought is the states are going to enfranchise broadly. And at the founding, that was white property uh, males uh, who would have the franchise, and it's it's broadened since then with some fits and starts, as Alex has pointed out. Um, so, so the Constitution structure sort of sets this up in an interesting way, and and it presumes a couple of things. The first is if we want to expand the, the qualifications of the electorate, right? The, the presumption seems to be either it happens in the states or we have to amend the Constitution. And that's what happens with the 15th Amendment to say, essentially, listen, we think that the, the, the freedman has the right to vote and should be given the right to vote. And so we're going to pass the 15th Amendment to ensure that will not be deprived of any African-American in any of the states. And, and then when it comes to something like the 19th Amendment and, and women's suffrage, it's, a, it's an interesting and slightly different story, right? Because it's states that really start this movement of enfranchising women out west. Um, as, as the lore tells it, that it, it's a motive to have women move out west and it will be an opportunity for them to, to vote and participate in these elections. And so the women's suffrage movement, you know, we celebrate it as 100 years you know, this year, but that's 100 years of the 19th Amendment. It was happening much earlier in many other places throughout the country. And even today, when we talk about um, non-citizens and whether or not non-citizens should vote, um, it's something that you know happened, as Alex points out in his book, at, at points early in, in in the history of the United States. Uh, today, there's actually a federal law that prohibits you from doing so, any state from doing so. I think there's some questions about the constitutionality. Is that something that the federal government can do? Is that something under its immigration authority? I don't know. 
But there are a lot of states that have the, their localities and school board elections do experiment and say, we want non-citizens to vote and participate in these elections. So when we think about what the right to vote means, and we obviously understandably focus on a lot of those instances where states denied the right to vote to a number of, of individuals, and we passed a constitutional amendment to ensure there would be authority for uh, you know the federal government to intervene or to ensure that we, we've set some minimum standards. Um, but it's an interesting story to think about this overlap and relationship between the state and federal government when it comes to, to defining the right to vote and, and, and who should participate in our, in our political system. Thank you for that and for reminding us of this important and complicated relationship between the federal government and the states, which we will revisit throughout the conversation. In the chat box, Edward Shapson says, can we please take a minute or two to recognize the role of John Lewis in the fight to grant and protect voting rights? Thank you so much, Mr. Shapson, for reminding me of what I meant to do at the beginning of the program and, and jumped right in uh, because of my enthusiasm. But it is deeply meaningful to pause to recognize the role of Representative Lewis, uh, one of the great constitutional heroes of the 20th century and one of the most important figures for the expansion of voting rights in this century. The Constitution Center was greatly honored in 2016 to award the Liberty Medal to Representative Lewis. And it was so inspiring to hear him invoke the legacy of his mentor, Dr. King, in inspiring his nonviolent protest at the Pettus Bridge, which helped lead to the enactment of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the shining example of his moral and constitutional vision is one that will live with all of us for many years. So just take a moment for all of us to recognize and celebrate his blessed memory. Alex, with that in mind, what does Representative Lewis's achievements and those of the civil rights movement in passing the Voting Rights Act of 65, how did that transform the nature of voting rights in America? And describe that period from 1965 to the present, where it seems that the path toward the expansion of voting rights was still not uh, steady and secure. Sure. I, I, I think, I think you know, the, a place I like to start with talking about the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is to point to its little-known subtitle. I mean, it is, is called the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the subtitle of it is An Act to Enforce the 15th Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, it is an enforce, a law to enforce a constitutional provision that had existed already for a century. Um, and you know, I mean, in effect, the path and, and uh, that that led to that um, was a path of, of activism and also a conclusion by Congress, um, by many other participants, that the southern states by themselves were not going to really reform themselves with respect to African-American suffrage and enforcement of the, the 15th Amendment. This is the darker side of what Derek was talking about before, of the autonomy of the states uh, in some areas, even though constitutionally they, they ought to have been required to register and enfranchise African-Americans. So, the, and the, success, the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which follows years of, of activism, and, and the activism continues because, you know, just the passage of the law doesn't do it in itself. I think 
you know, that there's, it's still very slow to get people registered, to get things enforced. Um, but it was truly transformative of voting patterns in the South and then also in, uh, in some other places. Um, I mean, you, you have an entire economically critical and somewhat dependent class of people who had been who had been disenfranchised, who had no who had no rights, and they they gain power, and that 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 is an enormous shift. I mean, you know, uh, it's uh, would would Barack Obama have been elected president if there had not been the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five? No, I mean, even just on the sheer numbers of, of who was enfranchised. Uh, or not, so I think I think this is really, really a, tra- a transformation. And as as is often the case in American history, um, so issues that deal with race or problems that focus on race spill over into linked and analogous issues. For example, lowering the voting age, um, which happens within a few years after uh, the Voting Rights Act, the shortening of residency requirements. Um, there is a whole large package of franchise expansions that happen in about five or six years. Um, and, and then they get, they're extended to language minorities, uh, largely the Spanish-speaking population, but not only. And here again, we are entering a period of large-scale immigration in the late 20th century. Um, so I think to summarize this more succinctly than what I've said so far is that this has been a dramatic expansion in voting rights, and it is followed by a reaction, which John Lewis recognized, lived through. I mean, he saw it going on. I mean, we all. I mean, his. But by that point, he gets. He's in. He's in Congress by the time the 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 reaction is happening, and he fights against it. He fights within Congress after the court decides that the preclearance provisions of the. Uh, of the Voting Rights Act are unconstitutional. He fights to restore them. He saw the arc of what was happening. He saw that there, that the victories that he and his colleagues uh, had been involved with, and as he often mentioned, shed blood for, were being reversed, and that then you had to start fighting again. And it's, uh, I think he had a deep understanding that Voting rights and democratic rights were not something that you simply achieved once and for all at a given moment and didn't have to protect thereafter. Thank you. That was both succinct and illuminating. And you've talked about the achievement of the Voting Rights Act and the backlash against it, consistent with the historical pattern, and talked about Representative Lewis's heroic efforts to respond politically. And for Nita Tolson, I'd like to ask you about the Judicial response. And, and first, tell us a little more about the Shelby County decision. David Olson says in the question and answer box, from my understanding of Shelby County, the court said a main issue was the lack of updating, which states and counties met the necessary discrimination standard. In light of this, would a simple reauthorization from Congress be enough, or would something else need to be included in a new Voting Rights Act to avoid being struck down again? And then for Nita Tosun, if you will, I, I really was so struck and learned so much from your series of articles invoking different constitutional provisions protecting voting rights that you say might be invoked to protect voting rights today, even in the wake of Shelby County. Tell us a bit about 
some of those provisions. Wow, I'm trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> um, um, uh, so, so I actually want to start. Um, I want to kind of piggyback a little bit on the, the John Lewis question because I do think that it ties into um, what needs to be done. Um, so, I, I find it remarkable that he was one of, if not the youngest speaker, one of the youngest speakers at, at the March on Washington in 1963, and the fact that he continued to serve um, up to his death pretty much. And, you know, that, that just sort of highlights how the struggle for voting rights is ongoing. And it's not about, you know, sort of reaching a peak and then stepping back. You have to be vigilant about um, protecting voting rights, even after you achieve some successes. And I think we're living in a period where a, a period of retraction, right? Because there's a lot of voter suppression. Um, there's a lot of disenfranchisement. And so I think it sort of highlights everything that John Lewis was fighting for. Um, and part of the reason why he continued to fight is because I think the, the Shelby County decision um, did not come out of the blue, right? It wasn't a decision that just happened in 2013. That was a 2009 decision um, called Northwest Austin, um, where the Supreme Court um, warned us. They, they indicated that the preclearance formula was a problem, that it hadn't been updated since the 1970s. Um, but I, I think to some extent, um, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to sit here and criticize Congress. Yes, I am. I am sitting here criticizing Congress because they did have the opportunity to update it and they did not. And there were people, scholars who testified during the reauthor reauthorization hearings that the preclearance formula would be a problem. Um, and, you know, it wasn't as if they couldn't update it. The, the jurisdictions that were covered, the formula did a pretty good job of catch, capturing the problematic jurisdictions. Because after Shelby County was decided, uh, states like Texas, and Mississippi and Alabama all, you know, took steps to further disenfranchise and suppress the vote. Like this wasn't, it wasn't rocket science, right? This is based on sort of a historical understanding of what these jurisdictions do. Um, so, so yes, the, the preclearance formula was a problem. Um, and the, the Supreme Court was not willing to read congressional power very broadly. Like they were coming from a baseline in which, as, as Derek points out, our system is one in which the states traditionally regulate elections, right? If that is your baseline, then federal power seems exceptional. And if federal power is exceptional, then Congress needs to justify any acts that intrude on the power of the states. Um, I think a lot of my work tries to challenge that narrative. Um, so one thing I don't do, I don't argue that there's a, a, a federal right to vote in a traditional sense, right? Derek is absolutely right that the Constitution is not explicit in saying that there's a right to vote. A lot of this happens by inference. A lot of this happens with the court coming in and saying, look, we're going to read the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause broad enough to say that there's a right to vote. But anytime you have a situation like that, what the court creates, the court can take away. Right. This is why it's important to sort of have those things in the text instead of relying on the courts. Uh, but because the court is taking the lead and sort of shaping this jurisprudence around the right to vote, there is a question about what Congress can do. Right. If we are trying to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act, how do we do so in accordance with what the court has laid out in Shelby County? And I think it's very, very difficult. Um, my reading of the tea leaves is that the court was pretty committed in striking it down. Right. They want to sort of return to this world in which the states take a lead on all of this. Um, but to do so requires, you know, a bit of sticking your head in the, in the sand. Right. You sort of have to ignore um, the fact that there is still racial discrimination in voting. Um, race, uh, as Alex points out, bleeds over into a lot of other things. Like race and partisanship is very heavily intertwined in our system now, right? And so there's a partisan incentive to disenfranchise certain racial groups. Um, so 
it's, it's, it's very difficult to think of a, a, a formula that would be consistent with what the court is looking for in Shelby County, unless we look beyond the 14th and 15th amendments, right? This is part of my book project is to, to try to highlight that Congress has pretty comprehensive authority to, to intervene um, when there's a problem. And it doesn't just stop with the 14th and 15th amendments. So one of the arguments I made around the Shelby County uh, decision around the time it was decided was that the elections clause is also a source of authority here. Right. And if you look at congressional power in an aggregate. Right. So Congress's power to um, so states can set the time, place and manner of election, but Congress can alter or uh, make its own regulations. And also in conjunction with the 14th and 15th Amendments, that's a much broader source of authority than looking just at the 15th Amendment or at the 14th and 15th Amendments. And let me explain the practi practical implications of that. And then I'll wrap up. Sorry. Um, the practical implication of that is that if you just focus on the 14th and 15th Amendment, the court is looking for a record of intentional discrimination on the basis of race, right? And so they're looking for this pattern that they found wanting when they looked at the legislative record behind the 2006 reauthorization, right? The, the chief justice was clear that there wasn't the same pattern of discrimination that existed back in 1965 at the time that they reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. But if you look beyond the 14th and 15th Amendments, the Elections Clause does not require a pattern of intentional racial discrimination. And so even if the court is still looking for a legislative record, that gives Congress more room to legislate because they have additional provisions that they could rely on that don't require the same level of, 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 of pattern of discrimination as the 14th and 15th Amendments. And that, is, that makes a real difference in terms of what Congress can do in order to protect the right to vote. Thank you so much for that. It is such an important uh, argument that the elections clause, which doesn't require intentional discrimination, might be broader protection. And I really urge viewers to uh, read and learn from your other articles, which note uh, that there are other provisions of the Constitution, including Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, that might protect against disenfranchisement. Derek, lots of phenomenal questions from the audience. Julia Fracas asks, with the reintroduction of the Bipartisan Voting Rights Advancement Act in the Senate this week, a bill with 46 co-sponsors named after Representative John Lewis that would restore voter protections that the congressman fought so mightily for throughout his life. What are the chances that this might pass in the Senate? And that leads to the important question, is this purely a partisan issue? The Voting Rights Advancement Act has uh, Democratic co-sponsors and two independents, but no Republicans. Is it just because it's viewed as not in Republican partisan interest or their principled objections to it. And then I really do want our audience to hear the arguments on behalf of the Shelby County case uh, for the majority, which, which you've, I think, defended. Why do you think the court was correct to strike down the preclearance decisions? And what, if anything, do you think that the states could do constitutionally to restore those protections? Well, lots to get to. Uh, well, let me start with uh, the late Representative John Lewis. I think... Um if, if you and the audience have not seen or, you know, some of the video footage of that March in 1965, where a very young John Lewis is at the front of the line uh, in, in a peaceful march and watching Alabama state troopers essentially firing tear gas and beating him, um, you know, it's a miracle in some senses that he's alive, much less what it means to sort of stand up and think about voting rights uh, in a very different era. And I think uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did 
incredible, tremendous work. Um, it, it took a lot of effort from Congress to do it, right? It took it took a march. It took deaths. It took beatings uh, for Congress to sort of uh, get the attention that you know what there are there are some some real problems in portions of this country. Um, and so the Voting Rights Act of 1965 went a very long way in enfranchising uh, tremendous numbers of African American voters who had previously been disenfranchised. And who, who began to participate actively in, in ways they hadn't for uh, nearly 100 years in, in the South. So, um, you know, th- it, but it requires congressional will, right? So when we talk about today about Congress's intent or motivation, that's, that's a tough thing to figure out, right? Is, is it partisan in, in nature? Is it, is it something more sinister? You know, as, as Fernando was talking about the, the relationship between race and party, you know, in 1965, there was one party in the South. It was the Democratic Party, essentially. And so a lot of the fights about white and black voters were essentially intra-party feuds. And that has since sort of shifted in the sense that we now have a lot of partisan polarization in addition to racial polarization. So that's changed a lot of the dynamics and how we view the relationship between race and party and the right to vote. Um I think about the Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, some of those early ones that, you know, Alex points out, it, there were some provisions that changed things like residency requirements. Um, Congress went in and said, you know what, we think that while the Supreme Court has said literacy tests that are fairly administered or constitutional, we in Congress think there's a pretty good record that literacy tests are not being fairly administered. We think they're being administered in a way that's that's designed to uh, suppress black voters. Um, so Congress, again, sort of steps up to the plate and makes these sorts of decisions. So the Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act, the sort of proposal that came out of the House and is now in the Senate, tries to, to sort of cure some of the things that, that Fernita identified and things that the court identified as a problem in Shelby County, right? That, that, that the, the, the formula had not been actively updated by the court since 1975. Uh, and this provision of the Voting Rights Act was supposed to extend until the 2030s. Um, and for the court to sit there and say, well, Congress sort of has done its homework, uh, it just seems like it was the path of least resistance for Congress. Why update? Why change something? You're starting to make new political enemies. So the Voting Rights Advancement Act, at least, is designed to sort of address those precise concerns from the court and say it's a dynamic formula, one that looks at past, recent past ac- actions of states or municipal or, or localities to say if you've been found to engage in intentional racial discrimination when it comes to voting rights, you will be subject to this provision where you have to seek preclearance of, of, of your laws. We want to provide notice to the people about changes to their laws. And, and things like providing notice is, you know, for you know, it's so important to emphasize things like the elections clause. There are a lot of provisions of the Voting Rights Advancement Act that are not sort of, I think, within Congress's 14th, 15th Amendment power. They're the kinds of things that I think are squarely within the elections clause power of Congress to step in and say, we want to talk about the times, places, and manner of holding elections. And here's how the manner of holding elections is going to look, states. You can't change your laws too close to election day. You have to notify people. You have to publicize changes to your election laws, things like that. Um, so, you know, but but again, it requires sort of political will, congressional will in Congress. And uh, for whatever reason, whether we say it's partisanship, polarization, uh, whatever it might be, um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a dicey proposition to figure out whether or not Congress is going to unify as, as it has in the past on a bipartisan basis to enact some of these uh, voting related reforms. Uh, it was difficult even to, to for Congress to agree on some funding for states in the time of the coronavirus, right? It, it took a little bit of sort of muscle for that to happen in Congress. Whether or not more robust things happen uh, ahead of the 2020 election, I think, is, is, is a dicey proposition.
fire Congress, in other words. <laughs> fire, fire Congress, that's it. Okay. Fascinating. Well, um, the, the question and answer box is on fire. There are so many phenomenal questions. And among them, we've got to talk about the role of the Electoral College. Alex, your forthcoming book coming out on July 30th asks the question, why do we still have the Electoral College? So I'll ask you why we still have it. And note that you've said that the through line between your two books is Justice Scalia's observation that the late Justice Scalia, who pointed out that there is no right to vote for president guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution, you've noted that the framers, both of the Electoral College and of the revisions to it after the election of 1800, didn't anticipate a winner-take-all system for the distribution of electoral votes, would have preferred a district system, but that's not the way things turned out. And I'll, I'll note finally that we had a great program on the Electoral College with Jesse Wegman, who uh, has a new book out too. And he notes, among other things, that uh, Congress came within a few votes of proposing a amendment that would have adopted a national popular vote uh, in the 1970s, proposed by Birch Baugh, endorsed by both political parties, President Nixon and uh, Democrats, but it was Democrats in the South who killed it. So what can we expect from your new book, and why do we still have an electoral college? I, I've been a little bit bedeviled by by the title that I gave to the book, because um, I, I'm finding that people sort of turn to me and then say, so why do we have it? There's, you know, I'm supposed to come up with a two-sentence uh, answer, which my own title set up and, and, and to which I end up saying, if I could have said it in two sentences, I wouldn't have written the book. But, um, but I mean, there, there's, there's, I guess, for this one, there's several, there's several things I'd like to sort of make clear, you know, as takeaways. One... Um, is that people should know that there have been very large-scale efforts to modify or get rid of the Electoral College in its various pieces. We forget that there are a lot of different pieces of this system, and I'll say a little bit more about that. But there have been large-scale efforts since the early 19th century. There have been more constitutional amendments introduced into Congress on this subject than on any other subject in U.S. history. And there have been several occasions when we came very close to altering the system. I mean, you mentioned the 1969-70, which was to have a national popular vote. Um, but uh, equally so between 1816 and 1820 and, and 1822. And um, in 1821, the Senate approves by a two-thirds vote a constitutional amendment to require district elections for electors. And in the House, they're just a few votes short of the two-thirds needed. So one thing we should know, this has long been a problem. In terms of what has prevented it, um, there's not a single factor at all times, but let me mention three. One is, as I alluded to, the complexity of the institution itself. For example, it includes this whole contingent election system. What happens if nobody wins a majority of the electoral vote? Uh, That's still part of the Constitution. The answer is it goes to the House um, and... Each state delegation gets one vote. Well, that's that in the 19th century, people thought that that was going to be used a lot, and they there was a and you couldn't reform the rest of the electoral college without reforming that, and that remains true today. There are a lot of different features, including the fact, going back to Justice Scalia's uh, quotation, that the Constitution leaves it to the states to decide the manner in which electors will be chosen so that they can do winner-take-all or they can do it by district. Can they take that dimension away? Um, the second factor is partisanship, but part, um, that sort of partisan interests 
And this is almost always true with electoral systems. Once you have an electoral system in place, partisan interests form around it. People want to defend their own interests. And if they think that a change in the system might hurt them, they're going to tend to oppose it. That doesn't always happen. Uh, There have been a lot of principled players in Congress and and elsewhere who thought that uh, a national popular vote, for example, was a better system. Um, But partisan interests do uh, insert themselves frequently. But the last point I want to make here is that, and I think probably what's the point that's going to be most frequently noted about the book is is two-part. One, um, the conventional wisdom that electoral college reform has been blocked by the small states is simply not true. It's simply not true. It's a plausible uh, argument because the small states do get a slightly disproportionate quantity of electoral votes, but historically that has really not played a role. Um, And we can talk about details about that if anyone wishes to. And then on the other hand, I think that probably the single most important factor in preserving the Electoral College since the 1870s, 1880s, which means, you know, we're talking a good 140 years now, um, the single most important factor for a lot of that period was the desire of the white South and after Reconstruction, the the white supremacist regimes of the South to retain the Electoral College because it gave them extra power in presidential elections and thus extra influence in national politics. Why was that the case? And again, I'll try to be brief. We all know about the three-fifths clause um, uh, before the Civil War, where southern states got representation in Congress and electoral votes for three-fifths of their slaves. Well, by the 1890s, after these white supremacist regimes had returned to power and disenfranchised African-Americans, there was, in effect, a five-fifths clause uh, that operated for the benefit of of the South. African-Americans counted 100% towards representation and electoral votes, um, but they still couldn't vote. The white South wanted to preserve that system, and it sort of kept the idea of a national popular vote off the table for decades and decades, and as you alluded to before, in the end, in 1969-70, when we came extremely close to adopting a national popular vote, it it was Southern segregationist senators who led the opposition. Thank you for all that, and we will very much look forward to your new book, uh, which we put a link to in the chat box, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Greg Blonder has put in the Q&A box a link to a proposal for a national popular ranked choice vote constitutional amendment. In practice, that will face an uphill battle because it's very hard to pass constitutional amendments. An alternative is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Fernita Tolson, tell us about that compact. Do you support it? Might it pass? And would it be consistent with the Constitution? Um, So uh, the National Popular Vote Initiative is a uh, compact amongst states who pledged that their electoral college votes will go to the winner of the uh, popular vote, uh, the national popular vote. And so uh, right now, I think there are 16 states that are signed on for a total of 196 uh, electoral votes. Um, And so the compact will go into effect when they reach 270, which is uh, what's necessary to win uh, the presidency. Um, So so I've 
I support it in theory, right? I, I sort of recognize that the electoral college is a problem. Um, but, you know, it's, it's difficult to think about changing the, the structure of the constitution by compact. And that's, that's the struggle that I have because the electoral college is there, right? And so really for me, the question is, can we come up with a statutory alternative or workaround that essentially negates part of the constitution in some ways? You know, so on one hand, I look at Article 2, which gives states control over how they allocate their electors, right? So one might say that this is within the text of the Constitution. States are deciding to join this compact, and that is a way of determining how they will award their electors. But on the other hand, they're also holding an an election, right? So it is conceivable that a state can have an election. You can have candidate A win the election, but then candidate B get the electoral votes because that person has won the national vote. Um, And so for me, um, if Bush versus Gore taught us anything, now Bush versus Gore was the decision following the 2000 election that stopped the recount in Florida. And part of the the reasoning of that case is that the the failure to set recount standards was a post-election change, right? That um, violated the Equal Protection Clause. And so if the Supreme Court viewed the National Popular Vote Initiative and the possibility of candidate B winning the electoral votes of a state in which candidate A actually won the, the popular vote in that state, that is a possible post-election change, right? So I, I don't think the Supreme Court, as currently constituted, would uphold the National Popular Vote Initiative, even if in theory it's a good idea. And so I'm just sort of leery about the idea of changing the structure of the Constitution through a statute. Derek, similar question to you, picking up on Michelle Green's question about please address the concept of a compact among the states. Do you think it's constitutional and do you think it's a good idea? Well, I think the constitutionality question is is tricky, as Frinid has pointed out. There's some sort of implied sort of structural concerns that we have. I think one one more express concern is that there's a provision of the constitution called the compact clause, which says no state shall enter into any compact with each other without the consent of Congress. So at the very least, I think Congress would have to consent to any agreement like this. Um, But even if Congress consents, can you essentially sort of transform this system where you are sort of having all these different states doing different things and throwing their votes into one big bucket. You know, on the, on the good idea, bad idea, in, in my in my opinion, I think whether, whether or not you think the Electoral College is a good idea or bad idea, in my view, the national popular vote has some problems in terms of being a good idea as the way to go as a statutory method. Um, so again, one of these core things I've mentioned is we, we presume the states sort of pick voter qualifications, right? So in all 50 states, the voter qualifications are a little bit different, right? So when we think about um, those who are uh, who've committed a felony and whether or not they're eligible to vote, um, in, in Maine and in Vermont, incarcerated felons can vote, and they can't do that anywhere else in the country. There's a bill in the District of Columbia to authorize them to do so. Uh, when we think about uh, children, so we right now, anyone 18 and up votes, that's in the Constitution, but there have been sort of fits and starts in some states about reducing the voting age. When we think about mental capacity, or we think uh, about non-citizens, you know, those are, there are different rules that we could have in place in different states. And if you throw everything into one bucket, Congress is not sort of defined finding that one bucket, right? When we think about who's on the ballot, yeah, we know, we all know Donald Trump and Joe Biden are going to be on the ballot. Kanye West is going to be on the ballot in at least one state, we think, right? It seems a little strange to have a national election 
that's still being run on a state-by-state basis. So in my view, if we're going to reform the Electoral College, if we're going to do the kind of thing that was proposed in 1970, it really has to be a constitutional amendment. It has to be a constitutional amendment that defines sort of some uniform set of voting qualifications that expressly empowers Congress to provide some of that uniformity and that anticipates some of the, this, the, these problems that can arise based upon, again, sort of the, the implied structure of how we handle the, these constitutional provisions pertaining to presidential elections. Um, so in, in my view, even whether or not you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, I think the national popular vote sh- falls short of the kinds of things that we would want in a system that that reforms our presidential election. Thank you. Well, this is the last round, and, and there are so many phenomenal questions, so I'll just pose a couple to each of you for closing statements and, and bring all these trends together as you think best. Uh, David Musselman asks, can you discuss the Florida constitutional amendment granting the right to vote to convicted felons and the subsequent imposition by the state of a requirement that they pay their court costs prior to be able to vote? That relates to a, a question about commenting on the recent Supreme Court decision leaving in place an appeals court stay of a trial court ruling that the Florida voting restrictions on ex-felons were unconstitutional. And it also picks up on, on Derek's recent statement that currently only Maine and Vermont allow felons to vote. So a- Alex, the question is about this Florida constitutional amendment granting the right to vote to uh, convicted felons, the Supreme Court's refusal to hear it, and any other recent Supreme Court decisions about voting rights that you think are worth noting in your closing thoughts? Um, sure. I mean, you know, I think that uh, you know, what happened in Florida, in effect, was that the Supreme Court said it was okay for a partisan legislature, being the, the Florida legislature, which is, which is entirely Republican, to override the efforts of what had been a multi-year popular mobilization in order to allow convicted felons to have their rights restored after they had served their sentences. I mean, that, that's really, that's not the main, and you know, and, and, and Vermont uh, model. It's simply to, rest- it's to eliminate permanent and lifetime disenfranchisement, which had in effect been Florida law. And there was an extraordinary popular movement to uh, to overturn that, and it worked. And then the legislature turned around and said, but you have to pay all your court fees and you have to pay all your fines, and if you don't pay that and you vote, that's a felony again, so you'll be put in jail. But meanwhile, we actually can't tell you what your how much money you owe because we don't have a record of the uh, you know of the fines and the court fees. Um, I found it very disturbing that the Supreme Court in effect preventing hundreds of thousands of people from voting that the Supreme Court upheld that. It has also, and I think Fernita and Derek are much closer students of Supreme Court decisions uh, than I am, but it seems to me to fit with a recent drift, drift may be too mild a word, um, uh, um, I mean, decisions of the Supreme Court to weigh in on the side of sanctioning obstacles to voting rather than supporting efforts to make it easier for people to vote. Frenita, we have several questions about recent cases arising out of the COVID crisis uh, and absentee ballots. The Supreme Court has weighed in in several cases on this, most notably in the Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee case out of Wisconsin, where the court invoked a principle called the Purcell principle to say that 
courts should generally be reluctant to impose new voting requirements at the last minute. How might that principle play out in controversies over absentee ballots moving forward? And what kind of cases are you watching most closely? So we're going to see a lot of this. I think right now there is COVID-related litigation pending in like 38 or 39 states. Um, So the road between here and November will be sort of peppered with these decisions where you see and I, I hope I'm wrong about this, Where you, but I suspect the Supreme Court will hold the line and not be very protective of the right to vote despite the circumstances. Um, I, I know at the end of the, uh, the most recent term, there was a, a, a few stories about whether or not the court has sort of drifted more towards the center after, <laughs> after this past term. And if you look at the voting rights cases, that is not true. Um, this is still a right-leaning court. This is still a court that has not been protective of the right to vote. And in fact, um, some of the decisions that they've made uh, with respect to the, the, the COVID voting-related litigation has, has proven that point. Um, so the RNC versus DNC decision, which came out of Wisconsin and sort of last-minute efforts by the governor to close the polls, and, and, and then you know you had people who had filed the paperwork to get absentee ballots did not receive them and and they were forced to go to the polls on election day. And then you had the partisan wrangling between the governor and the state legislature. I mean, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, And so the Supreme Court did not seem very sympathetic to any of that. Right. And so at least in my mind, you you should at least think about the 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 poor souls who were trying to do the right thing. Right. They they filed their paperwork to get their absentee ballot on time, did not receive it. Um, The district court tried to accommodate that the Supreme Court stopped that effort from happening. And so um, one, of, one of the things that struck me about the language in that opinion, and which is why I feel comfortable sort of predicting that the Supreme Court will not be sympathetic to claim COVID-related claims moving forward, is the, the court seemed to apply the per sale principle, this idea that you should not have last-minute election changes um, without any consideration of context. It did not matter to the court that we are in the middle of a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic. Right. They, you know, hey, this is an election and they pretended like this is an election occurring like any other election. And it's not. Um, You can imagine an opposite story. Right. You can imagine a story in which the court paints the picture of the the importance of the right to vote and given district courts room to have the sort of remedial power in order to um, accommodate voters who experience difficulties through no fault of their own. But that is not the opinion that the court wrote. Instead, the court wrote an opinion that assumed that, you know, this is an election and so we have to play by normal rules, even though we're living in a once in a lifetime situation. So as long as that is the court's posture, I wouldn't anticipate that any decisions moving forward will be favorable to voting rights. Um, And I just want to piggyback on one other point that Alex made about the Florida litigation. Um, I cannot emphasize enough how disappointing the Supreme Court's position is in light of the fact, as Alex points out, a lot of people don't know how much they owe. And not only do they not know, they the state doesn't know, right? And so when you think about that and think about how the law operates, given that reality, it does function as a poll tax, right? It's not a situ- It's not enough to say that, well, they could just pay their fines and fees if the state doesn't even have this information. And one other additional thing, it would take an additional 21 workers in order to handle the influx of people coming in trying to register to vote and find out how much they owe and to basically comply with the state legislature's law. The state legislature made zero um, efforts in order to hire that number of people, right? So this is clearly a situation in which the state legislature has some ulterior motive in passing this law. 
when the state doesn't have information regarding what people owe and they refuse to hire the, the number of workers needed to actually implement the law. That tells us that this is about something else and that the Supreme Court completely ignored that. Thank you for all that. You said many things, including arguing that the Florida requirement was the equivalent of a poll tax. Friends, I was reminded from Alex's book, the origin of poll tax doesn't mean poll you're going to the polls, but poll is a head tax, a a tax that each individual uh, voter pays. And of course, it was the 24th Amendment that abolished poll taxes and said that the right to vote shall not be abridged by account of failure to pay poll taxes. Well, Derek, it falls to you to have the last word in this incredibly rich discussion. There's so much to talk about, but I would love our viewers to hear a defense, if you were inclined to make it, of the court's decisions, both in the Wisconsin absentee ballot case and the Florida case. Broadly, you've argued in favor of judicial deference to the states and against courts changing rules, but uh, why don't you bring whatever strands together you'd like and tell us why you think as a constitutional matter the Supreme Court in some of these recent cases has been correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard on the, on the constitutional dimension only because when we talk about sort of the Purcell principle, we talk about this case, you know, Purcell versus Gonzalez, where the court says we shouldn't engage in sort of last minute changes to election law rules. This is really kind of a wonky, uh, in the best sense of the word, right? Sort of uh, power of federal courts, timing of litigation, a little bit of Article Three power of the judiciary, right? So it's a lot of these are sort of cropping up all in, in the same sort of procedural posture. These are sort of emergency applications to the Supreme Court on an extremely short timeline. They're not sort of, they're not argued before the court. There's not sort of the parties filing all of their briefs. They're filing sort of rapid fire stuff and the court is coming out with sort of a best guess handling the status quo right now. And so I understand there's a lot of people very frustrated about it because especially with, with you know, COVID-19, there's a lot of changing circumstances and maybe the court should not be looking at something like the Purcell principle in the same way, right? Maybe should be handling some of these questions more on their merits. Um, you know, in 2014, there was a, a, a spate of litigation that came up before the Supreme Court involving a lot of these last minute changes to election laws. In some places, the court said, you know what, there's a voter ID law in place that a court has said shouldn't apply. It's not going to apply. In other places, it, it's okay, go into effect. And a lot of these cases, we see the court time and again saying, we're just not going to change whatever sort of has been the status quo. And sometimes that definition of the status quo is a little bit fluid in the court's eyes. (laughs) But I think it also emphasizes, you know, a a point that's kind of come up time and again, which is it's not going to be the federal judiciary that's going to be the one that's sort of going to solve all of your problems, right? It it really is going to have to be solutions at the state level. If it's problems with absentee voting, with uh, the the polling places on election day, the hours of the polling places, uh, you know, whether or not effective social distancing requirements are in place, these are things that are really going to have to happen at the legislative level. And I think litigation, while it might be successful in the very long term, right, in the two, three year window for a lot of these challenges, ahead of 2020 is going to be a very difficult thing, I think, for a lot of litigants to win. And so that just shifts things back to the political process. Thank you so much, Alex Kazar, Frenita Tolson, and Derek Muller for a really rich, substantive, and uh, diverse discussion of these crucially important constitutional questions involving voting rights. Friends, thank you for taking an hour in the middle of the day to educate yourself about the Constitution. There's so much more learning to do. So what I would love you to do, if you're so inspired, go to the Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution and read the best liberal and conservative scholars in America describing agreement and disagreement about all of the 
clauses we've discussed, Article 1, Section 4 and 5, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, and more. Check out our podcast, We the People and Live at the NCC, where this program will be rebroadcast for every week we bring together brilliant scholars like the one you've just heard to discuss the constitutional issues in the news, and most of all, continue to read and educate yourself about the Constitution. I want to thank the Stiege Thompson Communications Group for making this program possible and uh, also for supporting our year-long initiative, Women in the Constitution, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. We'll look forward to welcoming you both virtually and in person to that exhibit on the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and to seeing you on August 4th for our Supreme Court review. Alexander, Renita, and Derek, thank you all so much for joining. Thank you, friends. See you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. This program was made possible through the generous support of Stiege Thompson Communications. It's part of the Center's year-long initiative, Women and the Constitution, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. It also honors the 150th anniversary of the 15th Amendment. This episode was engineered by Dave Stotts, Kevin Kilborn, and Greg Sheckler, and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, and Sinead Tauber. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.